Grace and Peace. You're listening to United We Pray, taking racial struggles to the throne of grace. United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at youwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm Austin Suter, one of the co-hosts, joined today by Dr. George Yancey. Uh, Dr. Yancey is a professor of sociology at Baylor University with an academic interest in race relations and anti-Christian attitudes in the United States. He is a husband and father, author of many books, including Beyond Racial Division, published this year by InterVarsity Press. Um, Dr. Yancey, how are you, sir? Good to have you. Pretty good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to interview a few authors this season so far, and I always start with the same question. Why did you want to write this book? Well, uh, I, I guess I want, I guess part of me didn't want to write this book, you know, with in 2020, when all the uh, things were happening over George Floyd and Oliveri and, and uh, I just felt a, a burden on myself and, and I wanted to fight it off. Um, my wife really said, no, you really need to write a book. And I said, no, I don't want to write a book. And, and so we compromised and I wrote the book. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. So, uh, so anyways, we, uh, you know, I, I just feel, you know, I wrote, now I can't, Beyond Racial Gridlock uh, about 15 years ago. A lot of people really liked that book, but I felt it needed an update. I, I needed to add more knowledge I had gained. So that's where this book came out of. Got it. So we've given many of your books away. We will be giving several copies of this book away. If you follow our social media channels, take a look there. We, uh, you can enter to win. You offer a unique approach that you think Christians should take in dealing with racism, and you set it over against two popular approaches. Can you describe colorblindness and why you think that approach is attractive? Well, colorblindness is basically the idea that we should take race into account as little as possible. In fact, ideally, we'd be colorblind. We wouldn't see race, we'd treat everyone exactly equal. And I think its simplicity is its attraction. You know, why even pay attention to race? If we could not see race, if, if everyone has the exact same skin color, then we would treat each other exactly alike. Your race would not matter. Other things would matter. And that would be the way we would go. And, and I can appreciate the simplicity of that and why that's desirable at, at, at certain levels. I mean, it sounds appealing, right? It sounds at, at mm -hmm. sort of face value, like what you heard from Dr. King at the end of, of I Had a Dream, if you're, if you're only taking a few you know, quotes out of context. It sounds like something that would be good. There's another approach um, called anti-racism, which also sounds like a good thing. We don't want to be racist. Right, um, yes. What is that approach, and, and why do you think that's attractive? Yeah, I mean, both these models have great names. Colorblind, anti-racism, that sort of thing. Well, anti-racism emerged take care of some of the problems colorblindness missed, like how you deal with institutional racism, which doesn't depend on people being racist. And so anti-racism approach is that we're gonna be very deliberate, we're gonna be very assertive, if you will. And on the surface, this is very good. And there's a lot of things to appeal about anti-racism. The problem is, and when you read the literature, I think you read it honestly, this just comes out that Clearly, in anti-racism literature, the role of whites is to do what people of color tell them to do. And that is problematic for, I think it's problematic scripturally, but it's also problematic when we look at the science, that that is not the way in which we get, we get people together to work on a problem together. So 
that flaw, as well as some other flaws, but that, I think that's the core flaw in which a lot of the other problems arise out of anti-racism. And I think it's a bad enough flaw to really doom this. And the research shows that this is not an effective way to deal with racial issues. And you explore some of that research in your book. Um, this is this is well documented. You're not just hot taking here. So you argue for a different method from either of these, which you call at various points in your book, either mutual accountability or collaborative conversations. Would you define those terms? Yeah, you know, I guess I'm weak on having the the, the term that's really attractive, such as colorblind or anti-racism, you know. Uh, it does kind of sound scientific, and I, and I, you know, I guess I should be better at doing, I'm bad at picking these sort of concepts, I know. But if you want to think about this, I think about this and this. If you have a conflict with someone, what's a good way to deal with it? Is it to ignore the conflict? No. Is it to dominate the person? No. Is to work it out. And in a sense, that's what I'm asking us to do. I'm asking us to work it out in a mature fashion where we respect everyone, hear everyone out, and try to find solutions that we can all agree with. Uh, even if you don't get everything. That's what I think is very important as we look at, at uh, trying to solve these racial problems, these racial issues. Now, as they say, the devil's in the details. How do you actually right. do this? How do you dig into this? It's not as simple once you start digging into it. But that's in essence of what I'm arguing for. As features of this approach, you emphasize a couple of things, and I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate on a few of them. So the first one is that mutual accountability does not mean equal responsibility. Right. So what I argue is that when it comes to entering the conversation, then we do have equal responsibility. We are all mutual accountable. We all have to enter the conversation in good faith, promising to listen, listen to each other, hear each other out, trying to find solutions. We have to work with that way. I think some people fear that that means that our, our solution means that everyone has the exact same responsibility at the end of the day. Now, is it possible that's the solution? I think sometimes that will be the solution. But I think a lot of times it won't be, and I'll tell you why. When you have the histories of the history of racial abuse in our society, you're going to have problems that can't be solved by giving everyone the exact same responsibility. And so, but to get there, to get there, you have to get into there in good faith because you can't impose that solution on others because that's when you get all the resistance. So I am 100% right. We all have the responsibility to hear each other out and to work together. In a, in a godly manner. That does not mean the solution is going to be everyone has the exact same responsibility. That's really good. Another emphasis is the importance of active listening and being fair in these hard conversations. Yes. So active listening is basically the skill of listening to someone not to argue, but to understand and to understand where they're coming from. And so it's something that I do as an academic when I'm doing my, when I do interviews, I'm interviewing people to understand them, not to debate them, because I don't care to debate them at that particular moment. I care about understanding where they're coming from. And it's incredibly important because you can't hear where a person's coming from. You don't know. You can't address what their concerns really are because you don't know their concerns. So that is what, what I mean by active listening. Uh, this leads to a better communication, uh, listening, but also when you talk, you know what drives them and so you know how to motivate them all around being able to listen in a healthy way is vital to the success of this process and what struck me about that portion of the book i've got my copy here it's all marked up and tagged and everything it that portion really just seemed like an application of of like proverbs chapter 18 
you know, the full listens or the full response before he understands. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just good listening is good thinking. So I just really appreciated just your, the proverbial wisdom of that section of the book. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is just the importance of moral suasion mm-hmm. in these conversations. Yes. Why do you think that's so important? Well, because moral suasion is lasting, whereas using power is not. Uh, using power is a shortcut. Uh, is in the short term, you can get what you want. Uh, you know, I'm six foot three. I weigh over 200 pounds. A lot of times I can intimidate people if I chose to do so. But of course, the, the, their mind has not changed. And so that backlash will come at some point in time if you only use power. And I think I'm saying the book, there is a time in which we must use power. So, so this is not a, we can never use power. I think that that's not realistic. But if that is the main way we get compliance from people, then that's what we have to continue to use. That's really good. And if you continue to use power, then you can, you can wind up doing things that you never thought you would do because they violate your, your sense of morality. But you have to have that power to get to, them to do what you want. The terrorist tries to use power. I'm not saying we are going to be terrorists, but the, the terrorist feels that I cannot lose, therefore I must use whatever power I have, including terrorism. So that's where you can get to the power. Uh, moral suasion is our abilities to show others uh, the moral truths, uh, that this is the, more, the right thing to do. I don't know about you, but if I'm convinced something's the right thing to do, then I'm willing to make sacrifices to get it done. If, uh, if I'm if I feel I'm compelled to do something because of power, well, when I get a chance, I will stop doing it. When you don't have the power over me, I will stop doing it. But if I'm morally persuaded, then I will do it. I will make sacrifices for it. And that's why it's such a more powerful device than moral suasion. I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about sort of a related idea, um, because I, I think if people are going to misunderstand you, it will be on this point. And it's not because it's not clearly written. One of the things I really enjoy about your writing is just how clearly you communicate. You're, you're fantastic at that. You argue in your book that people on the side of anti-racism can want justice before there's understanding or persuasion. Yeah. And you've just said you think that's backwards. And you've, you've explained why a little bit. But let's be careful about what you're not saying. So you're yeah. not saying that justice isn't important or that justice matters less than understanding. No, right. No. Justice is, is is incredibly important, and it is something worth going towards. It, but let's all right. Let's be honest about justice. All right. If we believe in human depravity, if we believe that we humans are depraved. My idea of justice is going to be shaped by that. All right. So if what I say is I must have justice before I have unity, what it means is you must buy into my idea of justice, which we know is going to be shaped to favor me to some degree before I'm going to want to work with you. And that can be corrupting. And because people have been victimized does not mean that all of a sudden they're, they're going to be pure in the pursuit of justice. And there's a lot of examples historically about that, even in contemporary society. Even research that shows that people who are abused grow up to be abusers. So right. we, we know that you know, there's no pure justice when you're just thinking about yourself. But what if we unify to create justice? First off, that gets a lot of people on board. So it's not one group taking over another group. It's the groups working together. But second, where I have my failings, where I fail to see that my idea of justice is justice for me, but injustice for someone else, 
then I have people who can correct me. So in my mind, just as incredibly important, and that's why we should work towards it, but we can only truly work towards it if we work towards unity first. And that's where I come with uh, my argument. I think that's really good. Another thing you're not saying is that your approach is the right approach for all problems at all times. So you're not saying, for example, that, you know, the civil rights movement of the 60s failed. I think no, uh -uh. if I understand you right, yeah. you're saying it's incomplete. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying the techniques are used in the 60s that aren't necessarily going to work today, but, you know, they, they worked in the 60s. They worked in the 60s and 70s. And so, I'm, you know, I honor the, what happened in the 60s and 70s. I don't know if, if what we're doing today is, is we try to emulate that, that that's very effective given the changing dynamics of today. So, so yeah, I, I, I clearly would argue, argue that. And, you know, when people ask what we should do, one thing that I, I come back to is, okay, I could give you a list of things that I think should be done. And I could advocate for that and say, hey, you do this, you do this, you do this, and, and things are, but I think that that's the wrong approach and that's the approach that gets us in trouble because what it is is me dictating my desires to everyone else. For me, the approach I think works is that we work together, we work it out. How it may work out in, for example, one school district, if they're dealing with the problems of curriculum and how one school district may work out a problem, maybe totally different from another school district. And both are correct. Because what happened is in both situations, they work things out for what works for them. So yeah, there's no cookie cutter, one size fits all approach, but the the dynamic of working together instead of against each other, that's the thing that I want to see everywhere. I think you make a really winsome case for it. And what's interesting about the book is I don't think you necessarily have to be a Christian to see the wisdom of this approach. I think you're very persuasive in arguing to both proponents of colorblindness and anti-racism to show the shortcomings in the approaches. And I think you offer a very compelling case. That said, I, I think it sounds a little bit like harder work. It's harder work yeah. to persuade people and to yeah. sort of dig mm -hmm. in for harder conversations. Yeah. On this podcast, I think you're talking to a lot of believers. Mm -hmm. um, any pep talk you can give them to sort of dig in and do that harder work? Well, I think one way to look at it, and this makes sense on my other research of anti-Christian bias, because as you probably know, we are in a post-Christian society at this point in time. I think in a post-Christian society, we have to show the world something that they cannot easily get outside of the world. Now, you're right. I wrote this book that you could give to your non-Christian friend and say there's one chapter on theology. Skip that chapter if you want to. The rest of that, you know, the rest of the book, you know, he talks about research, he talks about logic. Go ahead and, 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 and see if this resonates with you. So I'm not saying that only Christians can do this. What I'm saying is we are in a better situation to do this than people outside. Our, our faith. And if we did this in a healthy way, which you're correct, it's going to take, it, it would be easier for me to, to advocate. I mean, there's a part of me that's tempted to write an anti-racism book because you can make good money doing that, you know, and, and there's an audience, ready audience out there for that. But because it's going to be harder, it's going to, the achievements can be greater and it's going to be a more powerful witness in a society where people don't have to go to church any longer. That there's no social pressure to go to church anymore. So we have to give them something that they don't see naturally elsewhere. And this can be that. Well, thank you for writing this book. I I appreciate just the the 
unique approach, the way you're saying something I think no one else is quite saying in the same way right now, and it's it's really compelling. So thank you for doing this hard work, and I will be giving copies away like crazy because we, we believe in what you're doing. Well, we tend to close our episodes Mm -hmm. just praying for what we've talked about. Would you feel comfortable doing that with us? And you can pray and I can close this out? Sure, sure. Father, I think for this day, I I just praise you. uh, Thank you for opportunities, the breath you give us, the life we can live, and help us to live through your glory. I do pray, Father, for the opportunity to try to heal some of the racial pain that's out there. Well, they help us to see there's pain on all sides of these issues. A lot of times we see just our folks, uh, and we're more acquainted with our pain. There's pain on all sides of these issues. And, and so help us to bring people together, to not split people apart. I, I pray for the, for our ministries that uh, that we become uh, uh, that true city on the hill, that 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 light that uh, could draw people towards you because they see how much we love. And, and, the, and they see the truth behind the nature of humans that, that, uh, that your wisdom portrays. So I do pray for this opportunity, Father, that we can really pull people together to love people well and to uh, be part of the healing of the society. And in doing so, revitalize the society that badly needs you. In Christ, I do pray. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my brother. Thank you for the work he put in to write this book, for the gifts you've given him to see things so clearly and to be able to explain them. Lord, we pray that this book would be widely read and that you would bear good fruit from it, Um, not just so that uh, we can build a name for him, but uh, that your people would be more unified as he prayed, that we would be, uh, that the world would know we are yours by the love we have for each other, Um, and that we would do a better job of that than we've ever done uh, in this country. Or we pray that things like this would help, that you would use them uh, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Yancey, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as always, listeners, thank you. You can find more about our work at youwepray.com. Grace and peace. Pray.